My grandma has always said, it's wonderful that you have so many friends, and I agree with her. During the pandemic, I realized how much I miss seeing the people who make my life so bright and interesting, and I wanted to find a way to introduce all of these stars to the world. And so I created this podcast. You, dear listener, will get a chance to be introduced to those who make my world hum with possibility. We will talk about serious things, silly things, sad things, glorious things, and things that make us feel alive. So settle in. It's just you and me. Hello there, Hafsa. Hello. So tell me who you are and how do we know each other? So I identify as a lot of things. Um, I identify as a queer woman, a Pakistani woman, a cis Mm -hmm. woman, an anthropologist, a crafter, yeah, there's many others. And then you get the usual sort of like, I'm a daughter and a sister and all of the other ways that people like write in a Twitter bio or whatever, you know? Yeah. <laughs> How do we know each other? Um, we met at Interfaith Youth Corps, which is a place where when we met, you were working there and I was one yes. of the student leadership people who was mm-hmm. in one of their programs. Um, and I was like an eventual intern and I also worked there. And so we worked there at the same time. And, and this I was like, I think it was maybe 07 that you, you kind of were, was that when you did FAF? Um, I did, I started with the Chicago Youth Council. Oh, that's right. You actually were really ingrained in it before me. I was, I was there. I started in 2005, okay. um, my first year of college. And I think I remember when you joined because before you joined, it was an organization that was really tiny staff wise. I yep. think we were the program that, that they did. And it was one program and we had like, there was like four people on staff. It was- I think, I think actually I was number 11 maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah. when did, what year did you start? The end of 06. Okay. But yeah. I knew about the org since 02 because I was a youth minister, I just started. And CYC in the Chicago youth, they did all these activities for youth groups. And like, we went to Chicago Theological Seminary and had a, had an overnight and like Mariah was there. And I remember keep, and I loved it. And I remember, and we played the like game where you like got sick and like, and like you'd have money and all, it was kind of like about, it was basically about like learning about like people's like equality and stuff. Yeah. Do you remember that? I do remember that. It was it was like a monopoly like yes yes. And so I played the, up with. <laughs> yes, I remember <laughs> playing that all the time. So I remember, and I remember, I kept, I loved it, and I because I had just graduated college, and I kept the brochure until and I and then I met Erin Williams, and then um, she was like, oh, I work at this place called Interfaith Youth Corps, and I was like, oh my gosh, and she was like, we have an opening, anyways. So that's yeah. my very short story about how I how I got there, but. Yeah. So we know each other from there. Yes. Yeah. And we've kept in touch since then, which is really not the case with a lot of the people that I think that I worked there with, right? I think maybe you've kept in touch with more people than I have, but um, I- Ironically, a lot of them are going to be on this podcast, but- Oh, yes. Yeah. (laughs) 
but I think that I was really careful about who I kept in touch with after that. Yes. And I was really intentional about it. So yes, um, not to be like, you're so special, Julie, but like, mm -hmm. you're kind of special. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. You're kind of special too. And so what, if, okay. So you kind of used like describing like social location-esque words, but like, how would you describe like your personality? Mm, yes. I'm, I would maybe, I think that I would describe myself as introverted, but I have recently very much begun to question this sort of dichotomy that we have set up around personalities. And I've been co-teaching a class called the psychology of relationships with mm -hmm. a professor at um, a university here in Boston. And um, I think I've like come out of co-teaching this class being like there's no such thing as personalities and we're all sort of like not necessarily that we're all like free-floating individuals but that what grounds us is not like characteristics or certain sort of traits but it's the experiences that we've been through and the way that we construct narratives around those experiences that then shape us rather than the sort of preference for being alone at times or like being bubbly at a party or like those kinds of things that we tend to sort of value or discuss a little bit more openly than personality uh, or yeah. than experiences. So it's kind of like, why is personality a sort of privileged thing in the way that we talk about individuality? Yeah, because a lot, because I think about it and like, I don't know if it's just my obsession with pulling people out of you know, pulling, pulling the, the authentic out of people. But like, I love it when I find out that people are introverts, but yet around me are like some of the craziest people that I know, you know, and like people are always shocked. Like if we're, again, if we're using this dichotomy of like introvert, extrovert, like are always shocked when I actually tell them that I have very serious uh, introvert tendencies. Like they just don't understand that. But I think you're totally right. And I also feel like it's such it changes, right? Like changes based on location and experience and what, you know, what your role is in the world at that moment. And so like to just say, oh, you're this or you're that, and I can understand you fully, like that seems like complete bullshit to me. Yeah, it's, I think it's one of those things that maybe is this sort of like 1960s psychology mm -hmm. leftover that maybe mm -hmm. it'll take us a while and like the popular mainstream way of thinking about personality, like it might just take a while for us right. to get used to new ways to conceive of the self. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And so and much of what I do is, self, is studying self-making and all of this. Yeah, so. oh my gosh. Well, of course you have to bring this up and we're gonna talk about something different, but now I just wanna talk about this with you. <laughs> so, I want to talk about you coming out and you really living into your yourself as a queer person, queer person. And so would you define, would you say queer? What's your language that you like to use? I think that I am currently preferring the word queer over lesbian, but I also have a really strong affinity with the word lesbian and I really love it. I think that maybe comes from some of the ways that I conceived of queerness when I was younger, before I identified as queer, and like a lot of the reverence that I have for queer history, I think is what draws me to the word lesbian. I like just really love the way that like, I don't know, it's sort of um, 
a stone butch blues 1960s like romanticization of like the lesbian bar you know and like the butch and the femme dynamic and all of that like it feels really classic to me and I that's the sort of like past that I idolize I think like we have these like sort of romantic notions of American past like through Mad Men or something but like that's like the past that like I love delving into so I think in that sense I really do love the word lesbian and I love networks of women I grew up in a very sort of gender segregated world (laughs) a little bit I mean it's not as much as it maybe could have been but um I mean, in being Pakistani and being Pakistani American in particular, there was definitely a push that at a certain age, your friends should be of the same gender as you. And while there's a lot of negatives to that, and I think in our sort of modern way of thinking about it, it feels very negative, right? It feels like enforcing a binary and it feels like very patriarchal, but I think that there's something really beautiful about women's spaces and I mean women in, in a very inclusive term like I yeah. I think anyone who identifies as a woman and like being welcomed into that space um but I think there's something really lovely about that and that is also what I associate with that term so yeah. I I don't know I go back and forth queer and lesbian and sometimes yeah. queer lesbian yeah, yeah. and I think there's there's also some beauty to it right because there is there is when when you come out, right? Like there is a claiming that you are doing and to be able to name it in the way that you feel most comfortable is also this like very serious power that I feel like you have like, and, and you know, for me, like I'm fine with whatever anyone wants to call me, but like, if you ask me, I'm gonna say I'm queer, right? Cause that is where right now in this moment, I feel the most power and the most um, drawn to, right. And the most like identifying. And so what, when did you come out? Tell me about it. Tell me what happened. What happened to you? <laughs> there's so many, there's so many <laughs> stages. It's really hard right. to figure out, right. It's, yeah. it's one of those things that in hindsight, I can say, okay, well, when I really came out, I was 30 years old or whatever. And, um, and yeah, part of that's true, but I think that I had like little mini coming outs, like when I was 12 and I like did not fully understand my obsession with Sailor Moon, you know, like that, it's that kind of <laughs> where I'm kind of like looking back on it, I'm like, oh, it's super obvious <laughs> and I was gay, but like nobody um, around me could be a model for what that could look like. And so I didn't think it was like a possibility for me. Yeah. Um, for a long time, for nearly all of my 20s, I thought that I was asexual. Mm -hmm. Um, And while I do think asexuality exists, it's very valid. I think that there's many people who are asexual. Um, For me, it was sort of a stepping stone to understanding that it wasn't that I disliked sex. It's just that I disliked sex with men. (laughs) And so it was, it was just part of the realization process. And, Mm -hmm. um, So I started identifying as asexual maybe when I was 24, 23, 24. 
I remember you claiming that. I, I remember very, very vividly you claiming that as an identity for yourself. Yeah. And it was very scary at the time to claim it. Um, not that many people knew about it. Yeah. Um, and I think still not many people do. It's still sort of a more invisible identity under the sort of yeah. alphabet soup, LGBTQ, yeah. one of the many A's that's, you know, in there. Um, and it was definitely from being online and like being connected to other queer people and asexual people online that I came to sort of realize that I was asexual in that sense. Um, and it wasn't until much later that I realized that that would just wasn't working for me. Um, and I was, man, how old was I? I think I must've been like 26 or 27. Mm -hmm. um, I was in a coffee shop um, in Claremont and- California. Uh, yep, in California. Mm -hmm where I got my, doing your master's yes yeah okay. I got my master's in theology mm -hmm. um, and I was ordering like a drink and like something from the little like pastry bar or whatever and I had gotten the last one and the woman behind me was like oh I was gonna order that and I was like oh I'm so sorry like I didn't know what to say no. um but she seemed like she wanted to strike up a conversation with me and I wasn't really having it at the time. I think I was like busy. I have like things to do. So <laughs> I, I left and then I saw her again at like the same time, same place, just the following week. Mm -hmm. um, because I used to go there every week, like before this particular meeting. Mm -hmm. And um, she showed up and she just immediately walked over to the table where I was sitting and just struck up a conversation. And then she asked me to go to dinner with her. Um, and- The boldness, the boldness. Very bold. Um, and we dated for about five or six months. Yeah. And the entire time that we dated, I had no sort of thoughts around my identity at all. I sure. did not even, I, I didn't even approach the, the subject. I was just kind of like, okay, this is just something that's happening. I don't really know. But what made you say yes? Cause you, you, you know, you were an active participant in this though. So what was it about it that you said yes to? I don't know. I still kind of don't know. Yeah. I think that there's something, she just seemed like a really interesting person that I wanted to get to know. Right. And also, like, I'm not somebody that gets asked out all the time right. or like, you know, barely ever. And <laughs> I was like, well, if someone wants to take me out on a date, who am I to say no? You know, <laughs> I was like, sure, why not? Let's try this out. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until well after we had broken up that I really thought about it. Yeah. It's kind of like a formative queer experience. Yeah. Um, and I was like, oh, maybe I like women. <laughs> and it was like such a revelation. And I remember I, the first person that I told was my friend, Michael. Mm -hmm. And his reaction was just so, oh, okay. That it was really comforting mm -hmm. that I realized that, oh, that was, that just is something that makes sense for me. And my friends know that it makes sense for me. So, 
yeah, it all, it all fits. And I think that realization of all of it fitting, there's kind of like a moment where you realize, oh, it's all clicked into place now. That all of the things that felt really abrasive no longer feel abrasive because you have like a much more grounded sense of self. Yeah. And yeah, there's something really wonderful about that. And I think it's, um, there's much, much that has been said about the closet and what the closet is, right? There's people who will write entire books about the nature Mm -hmm. of the closet and how evil it is and- um, Right. And so you, you've, you've actually kind of, you, I, I want to ask you a question about, you know, you're an anthropologist and you kind of touched on this a little bit, but is there study and, you know, the anthropology of coming out and like the idea that like, cause I, I find it to be as someone who has just very recently had, had to quote unquote, do this, right? Like it's totally dumb. But it's also totally great. Like, they, like there's this weirdness where it's like, why the fuck do I need to like make this declaration? Which again, people don't have like you do not have to. But and then there's this notion of consistently always you're always kind of coming out. Like you're always having to clarify your your you know orientation. Is there science about like what like? Because I just think it's terrible. But I want to know like where does it come from? <laughs> Where does it come from? I mean, there's many, many, there's many ways that people have conceived of it. Yeah. I, because I study this, it's kind of like a kind of literature that I'm so immersed in. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, I study, you know, queer women in Pakistan who Mm -hmm. are coming out with this English language terminology to themselves in a very new way in in that country and so for me this is such a central question of like what is coming out why does it matter why do we emphasize it so much Mm -hmm. um it's sort of the central element in our stories um in our representation right in media whenever they're showing queer people a lot of it is about coming out and not necessarily that it shouldn't be I think that there is something really important and valuable about it for a lot of people. And I mean, I came out to my family and I needed to, but not everybody needs to. Um, I think that a lot of it is, and forgive my going like really far and wide in my analysis, but I think Uh a lot of it is about our need to have a sort of Western individual self that is constant and consistent kind of like the way that we talked about personality before right it's like this idea of self that is fully individual separate from everyone around you um not fluid in any way right it's sort of a fixed thing you come out as a fixed identity um Mm -hmm. and you present that to the world and that is who you are right (laughs) and that is your identity um so i think that we have a tendency to overemphasize identity um, because we require it for the way that we've structured democracy. We require it for the way that we've structured um, consumerism. We require it for all of these sort of big heteropatriarchal systems under which we live, right? Capitalism means that we need to be an individual consumer 
Mm -hmm. um, we need to have, you know, a spokesperson for our identity if we're a minority. We we need mm -hmm. to have like people like Ellen DeGeneres so that we can have our our rights. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's uh, and then if people don't like Ellen anymore, then our rights are in question. Um, yeah. And so it's I think that it's tied to all of that, and that's why I think it's so fascinating to study queerness outside of the West because. Mm -hmm people in South Asia and people in many other parts of the world have not really conceived of themselves as individuals. Yeah. They've always thought of themselves as really intimately tied to other people, mm -hmm. like inextricably tied to other people. Yeah. You are, um, and you know, I was given three names when I was born. The, mm -hmm. My first name is myself. My second name is my father's name. My mm -hmm. third name is my clan name. Mm -hmm. And it's meant to always tie me back to the people that I belong to. And not to say that people in the West don't have that, for yeah. sure that they do, but um, the systems that we live in are constantly working against us building ties with other people. And I think our queerness both does this amazingly radical thing of connecting us with other people who are oppressed, mm -hmm. but then also it can reinforce some of the ways that we are made individual again and made separated from others. Yeah. So coming out to a family who is a bit more living into the world of communal, you know, because you are Pakistani, um, you know, how, but you live in the States, right? So you, you, you know, you grew up as a Pakistani American. So how was that for you? So how is coming out, yeah, to a very Pakistani family? Right. I don't know. I had so few models of it. And actually, I the only reason that I even considered it is because the year before I came out, I did a, an Urdu language study, like an intensive Urdu language program at mm -hmm. the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Mm -hmm. And um, I met a friend there, Thalib, who... Um, had been out to his family for a couple of years and we talked about it at length um, and I didn't even think it was something that was possible for me to do until I had met him um, and I realized I don't have to keep this for my family they can know um, at that point I was 29 or 30 and um Oh, I must have been a little older. I love how you talk like you're like the oldest person. In the I know. World. I well, I have to say that I'm well into my 30s, but I've had many people tell me I can't claim that. Oh, so, how old are you? I'm 33. <laughs> if you can possibly remember back to your 30th year. My third, yeah, it really, it feels so long ago. One, because of COVID time sort of skewing everything. But also because I always have felt way older than I actually yes. am. So yes. I'm always grandmother. In, in my heart, I am like a 55 year old woman, Minimum. you know, seen all of this. Yes. Um, yeah. So yes, way back when, like only two or three years ago. Um, yeah. And I, yeah, so I just realized I don't have to sort of keep this for my parents. I can tell them. Yeah. Um, and I had, you know, already gotten to the position with my parents of like they were starting to be okay with the idea that I would never get married mm. um which is 
was kind of my stepping stone for them because even not getting married is such a major thing to convince your parents when, yeah. when marriage and especially a wedding, like the rituals around a wedding are so set up to solidify your relationship with your family and your in-laws and that my parents wouldn't get to do that would mean there's a status to it too I mean there's a status of being you know being the parents of the bride or the you know totally within your community yeah yeah and it's sort of having them watch you transition from being what is in their minds a child to an adult right that's really such a big part of what a wedding is yep and that my parents wouldn't get that that I would just tell them okay I'm an adult now and I'm not getting married is like not enough for them. They were like, we need, you know, we needed more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on top of it to say, and if I ever did get married, it would not be to a man was, yeah, it was really difficult. And I think my parents are still, you know, it's, it's, uh, that was, that conversation with them was maybe a year and a half ago now. And I think that I'm still in the middle of coming out to them. Um, yeah. They're still, they're still grappling with all of the questions that they have around, you know, what does this mean? What do I tell my friends? What, um, you know, they, they are trying their best to love and support me. Yeah. Um, And actually that's the first thing that my mother said to me after she read the letter, I I wrote a letter to them. Okay. The thing that she said to me after she wrote the letter um, was, you know, I, I'll love you no matter what. Um, and that is, that was wonderful to hear. My mom, my mom's amazing. She had no sort of framework for how to respond to this, but she responded to it in the best way possible. Um, which makes me very, very lucky. Um, but she did have many moments of crisis between then and now as to, you know, what this means for herself and, she didn't want to make it about herself, but I think that's, there's no other way to do it. If you're a family member of a queer person, like you do have to make it about yourself. Right, right. Like, it'll take my dad a, a much longer time, I think. And how do you feel about that? Um, I mean, it's, it's up and down. Um, I, there was a moment last year this was after I had cut my hair short. And so already there were like many sort of visible signs of queerness that my parents had to deal with. Um, but I, my parents and I were visiting my sister in Houston. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad saw that my shoes, which are like a men's Oxford shoe, uh, mm-hmm. that they were kind of falling apart um, and they were just kind of old. I'm a grad student. I don't have that much money to like be buying new shoes all the time. And so, um, so my dad was like, you can't wear shoes that are falling apart. And so he took me to like a DSW in Houston uh-huh. and he took me to the men's section of the shoe department and bought me shoes from the men's section. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it was really great. It was really wow. great. He was like, he's like, these will last. <laughs> and so he hasn't really talked about it, but yeah. he, like, that was a really big moment for me. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think he knows that actually, but it was, 
really important for me that he did that. So they have their own ways, I think, of communicating that it's okay with them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so you, you know, you mentioned you cut your hair, which was a big deal. Um, talk a little bit about signaling to, because I, I talked with another friend just about clothing and body image and like, there is a sense of signaling in, in the, you know, in the world when you are queer, like about who you are, just based literally on what you look like. So when you cut your hair, what was that about? Ooh, yeah, that was, that's so true. It totally is one of those things where I, I wanted to walk down the street in a queer neighborhood and be recognized as one of these people. Yeah. Um, and I love getting misgendered because I identify as a cis woman. I use she, her pronouns. Yeah. Um, but someone the other day, it was like at a store or something was like, handing me my grocery bag and was like, here you go, sir. And I was elated. I loved it. Gosh, um, you should put my shoes. I get served all the time. So, and I hate it. So How do you feel about it? I hate it. Really? Yeah. But I think it's because I've pushed for my whole life. Ironically, this is also what I've talked about in a recent podcast, which will be um, before <laughs> this one. Um, it's very hard for me because I think I have been because I'm tall, because I'm broad, um, because I've always had short hair, because frankly, I like the way my face looks the best with short hair, it has nothing to do with my sexual identity. Yeah. Um, and I'm fat, so like, you know, the fact that my cheekbones show, like that's really important to me to like fit into the, you know, the stupid world. So I, I have a really hard time with it though, because I think that I've always been put in a more masculine category just because of the body that I inhabit. And so like, I think I really have a hard time with it, but I love the fact that it's like great for you. Yeah, no, I can really, I can really see how complicated it's, it is one of those things that if I was even in a slightly different mood would make me feel upset. So yeah. I, I can understand like, yes. And I mean, there's all of these different ways of being fat too. And I, yeah. I've identified as fat in the past and sometimes I'm not fat and sometimes I am. And it's like, I think it definitely depends on a lot of it does depend on how I'm feeling about my body at any given moment. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and so what else have you, what have you kind of taken on to continue to be recognized as, you know, part of the group, part of the family? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that cutting my hair short really was a, like the beginning of an exploration of dressing in a more masculine way. Yeah. Um, I had a Pinterest board that was called like soft butch vibes mm. for maybe three or four years. Okay. And I finally bought some of the things that were on the Pinterest board so that I would actually wear them. And before, before I cut my hair short, I dressed very feminine, like high femme is like how I would describe my look. I wore makeup all the time. I wore earrings. I um, wore heels on occasion. I'm, I'm quite tall too. So I didn't always wear heels, but like I wore very girly shoes and um, dresses and skirts and yeah. And 
I loved that. I still, I think that I still would dress that way in the future. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's like out of the question for me, but um, yeah, where I am now, I really love dressing masculine. Yeah. Uh, it's a lot of fun just to like wear button down shirts and um, yeah, just wearing a lot of like pants. In the summer, I wore a lot of like masculine looking shorts. It was great. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. Well, and this has also been kind of a strange time because nobody really sees me wearing all right. of my clothes, right? I I'm, I can go for a walk or something and that's about it. But otherwise it's mostly just me and my roommates and um, my partner. So right. it's, uh, it's not like you're dressing up for people. And yeah. who, to be honest, who dresses up for themselves? I think we've all learned we really do dress up for other people. Yes. Yes, I think I think that if you find something that that you like and feels good, you're dressing for yourself. But there's definitely still a pull to who you're going to look like in the world, right? And how how you are going to fit. And I think that that never goes away. I mean, I think you're always like either like me, like getting wacky glasses. Like I love them, but I also know that there are a a piece that is conversational, right? That I can, mm -hmm. that people will comment on them. And I also think for me as someone who's who rarely gets commented on my body in a positive way, mm -hmm. I very specifically will wear things that are different, but it's never about my body. It's always about like an accessory. Yeah. I've always really, I've always done that. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's like an immediate, it's a preemptive defense you know, to have right. sometimes. it's something for people to talk about so that they won't talk about the thing that is hurtful. Yeah. Yeah. And so for you, I mean, you remind me when you started your doctorate. So I started in 2017. I'm currently in the middle of my fourth year. Yeah. So you had had the experience and uh, in in Claremont with with the the partner that you had started to come out to yourself and also to others but how much of your identity made you decide to study what you're deciding what you're what you're studying i mean it's a constant question for mm -hmm. maybe every anthropologist because yeah. as we like to say in anthropology it's, you know, we are the, we are the research instrument, you know, <laughs> um, it's, we're very silly and dorky in, in our field, but um, yeah, I, I think that it is impossible for me to have asked this question without being who I am. And I think actually almost embarrassingly now looking, thinking about how much I know now versus how much I knew then, yeah. My question then was, if I had been raised in Pakistan, if my parents had never brought me to this country, mm -hmm. would I still be queer? Mm. That was the question that I kept asking myself. And I think that immigrants are often asking themselves, you know, who would I be had we never left? Right, right. Because it's about this imagined land that you came from, right? It's not even about the real Pakistan. It's about this imagination of Pakistan that yeah. we all have in the diaspora. And um, when you've been raised away from that um, and are constantly in the shadow of that promised past, yeah. um, 
you are often left with, you know, who would I have been had we never left? Mm -hmm. And I think that was the question that I kept asking myself is, would I still be queer? Would I still be attracted to women? And um, it's a dangerous question to Mm -hmm. ask in LGBTQ circles, (laughs) because there's a definite sense that again, like this idea that yourself is unchanging and it exists always. And mm-hmm. if you're trans, you've always been trans. If you're a lesbian, you've always been a lesbian. Right. Um, and I don't necessarily come from the school of thought that necessarily uh, thinks that's true. I think mm-hmm. that you can choose to be a lesbian and you're still valid to be, mm-hmm. you know, it's-, it's which, is, okay. which is not something that a lot of people are comfortable with. Yeah. Yeah, and the I guess the fluidity of that is very scary to a lot of people. Very scary. Because yeah. I think that our um we have gotten our rights based on the notion that it's not a choice. Yeah. And oh, right yeah. Now, a lot of people it's not a choice. Right. But um, but that doesn't mean that the choice isn't there for some people. Yeah. And we should want that, I think. Right. I think that we should want it to be so free that you could choose it if you wanted it. Yeah. And so your experience in Pakistan with, you know, doing case studies and doing interviews is that there's a pretty, from what you tell me, a pretty vibrant and robust queer centered, you know, community Mm -hmm. in Pakistan. So I think with your question that you're asking yourself is that, you know, I would, I would have hoped that you would have had access, right, to to knowing that that people who you would be eventually become did exist. Yeah. And do you think that has that changed for you what the question is that, and what is the question that you're asking now in your research? Yeah, yeah. And I don't know actually, I mean, the question that I've asked that I just posed is like an impossible question to answer, right? That's true. That's true. It's kind of like one of those things where it's like you would never know who you would have been had things been right. different. And that's true right. for any of us, right? I think mm-hmm. that. It's, you know, who would I have been had I never left this job or who would I, who would I have been had I never left Chicago, you know, right. like there's all of these like ghosts of yourself that are like mm-hmm. out there, you know, that you don't really have access to. I think with this community, what I realized is like all of the questions that I should actually be asking other than this one that is impossible to answer is mm-hmm. I have, and this is so, this gets so cheesy. It gets cheesy because it's like the message of every young adult novel or whatever. <laughs> it's like love is the answer to everything. But like, I am just studying the emotion of love. Like how do people express it? How do people feel it? Um, mm-hmm. And I think part of that is driven by what I've seen on the ground. But I think part of that is also driven by this very Islamophobic notion that Muslims and that South Asians don't love the same way that other people love, that like we don't get to inhabit that emotion in the same way that other people do. Um, There's like all of these jokes, right, that like, um, like South Asian comedians have like around their families being like conditional love, you know, it's like, you know, my family will only love me if I'm a doctor, if I'm a lawyer or whatever. And that's sure that's a running joke or whatever. But I also think that's a really dangerous trope to put on us because like, you know, I came out to my mother and she loves me. That's unconditional love. Like my parents do love unconditionally. And 
um, I wanted to show all of the different ways that love is expressed so that we can decenter a little bit the way that we express love in the West. Mm -hmm. um, and what we consider to be acceptable forms of love might not be acceptable somewhere else, but that doesn't mean that they don't feel it. Yeah. So this is really weird because I actually all day today have been debating in my brain whether or not unconditional love exists. Mm, and yeah. so I don't know how you read my mind, but this is fascinating. <laughs> Can you um, tell me more about what you've been ruminating on? With yeah, I just, you know, I think, I think that it's, it's based in fear. It's, it's based in the notion that we have to have a reason why someone would never not love us. Yeah. And I think that there's always a possibility that people, animals, I mean, there's, I don't, I don't think any relationship is unconditional. Yeah. There's all, cause like, I think, I think something that, you know, people always bring up is, oh, my pet loves me unconditionally. Well, your pet depends on you to be alive. Yes. So there's condition right there, right? Yeah. And maybe I'm being super like negative pessimist. I'm just, I've just been thinking about this a lot. And I, I don't think that that diminishes love. I think it actually just makes us realize that we need to consistently be working at it and to be not proving to each other that we love each other, but like that it's not that we can't just fuck around and like people are just going to you know, come and be at the, our beck and call all the time. I don't know. I've just been thinking about that a lot. And for some reason was thinking about it extra today. And so what are your thoughts? Tell me, tell me what you think. And yeah. obviously I'm just bringing this up. So no, I think that's so, I think that's so true. I think that um, we have a tendency maybe to think of unconditional love as passive. Mm. It's love that is, um, something that is given or is received in um, a really passive way. But I think that you're right to say that um, emotional, the, if, if we're thinking of love as an emotion, yeah. then emotions are always active, that they require, um, there's actually this great work by um, Eve Sedgwick called Touching Feeling, which mm -hmm. is all about how when you are sort of affected by another person, you like your feeling is a response to their action. So like you, there must be an action in order for there to be a response to the action. Mm -hmm. And I think that like you've pinpointed that really well is that love is an active thing. It's yeah. something that needs to be sort of expressed constantly and consistently for it to be unconditional. And I think of, I think of it more that unconditional is a state that love can get to mm. but it's not universal and it's not a it's not a sure thing it can also be yeah. taken away and know? that's where I think the fear comes in is that I think that people like to notate relationships as unconditional because they're they don't ever want it to go away mm-hmm Right. Mm -hmm. And they, and, and, and it's almost like this other notion of like, I could never do wrong to this person, which is always possible. Right. And it doesn't mean that they won't love you. It's just that there's different, I don't know, there's variation of it. I just, this is, you know, this is COVID, this is pandemic, Julie, at a whole new level because 
all I do is hang no, out by myself and think. <laughs> My best thinking's in the shower, like most people. Yes, but it, I think that is where a lot of the great philosophy of the world is born from. I, I really do. I do think that. I think I was just talking to a friend the other day about um, Sadia Hartman because uh -huh. this friend was telling me about how it's really tough sometimes to think about building anti-racism work, anti-patriarchy work, all of this kind of work to like dismantle the systems that we live in when we come from such diverse places and we have to sort of acknowledge how difficult it is for other people constantly and where do we get where do we go from there right we're just constantly in this place of apologizing to each other um and sadia hartman um who wrote this really amazing book called wayward lives um i think gets at this really really well in which she says it's not about empathy, right? It's, I mean, it, it starts out being about empathy, but it's not actually about empathy because empathy is gonna constantly ask you to sit with another person's feelings. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but it doesn't get you anywhere really. And she sort of argues that maybe what's better is if you think about what you have lost because someone else has been oppressed, or you think about what you have lost because capitalism has destroyed people's lives. And that requires, yeah. I think, a really deep and personal knowing of yourself that uh, empathy doesn't necessarily require you to do. It doesn't really allow you to confront yourself in the same way right. that it does. And I love that. And I think that's like what this sort of deep pandemic ruminating is for right you're confronting yourself and i think we're all confronting ourselves yeah right? throughout all yeah. of this and which i mean this is this has been an awful time and yeah. lives have you know been lost and destroyed um but you know i'm always there's always the hint of optimism with myself and it's like how can we all who are left here to continue um you know find some goodness in in what the hell have we've been going through, right? And it's really hard, but yeah. there's also some really, really beautiful things that have been coming out of, yeah. out of you know, such horrible th horribleness. So um, now it's my favorite part of the entire podcast. Okay, I get to be a little vulnerable or a lot vulnerable, it depends on your question. But Hafsa, you get to ask me anything you would like in the entire world. Okay, all right. So I mean, I know I, you have three. You have three to. to well, to I am prepared to things. You so always. Are. I yeah. had many questions asked, but I think one of the ones that I have been thinking about since you asked me to be to be part of this project was, uh -huh. um, you've had, you know, many years of building a lot of the friendships that you are showcasing in this podcast, mm -hmm. and beyond, you know your little intro for your podcast where you tell you where you tell us about your grandma. Um, but what, why now, why this podcast and why now, and what do you think that it has to offer? Uh, you know, I think, so I, so I, I kind of out loud say that, uh, you know, I, I want, I want people who are in my life, to be showcased to the rest of you know the ears of whoever will listen 
Um, but I think there's another part of it that is very morbid and it's very much like mortality based and not in like a sense of like, and I'm dying, you know, can, can you imagine if I was just like, and by the way, you know, I've like stage four cancer. Um, I don't, I don't. <laughs> okay. I mean, as far as I know, who knows? I haven't gone to the doctor in a bit because it's been a pandemic besides the doctor. So, but I think, you know, I think as I'm, I'm going to be 41 in this month, um, and I don't really know how that's supposed to feel, but I do think that I have more of a sense of like life, uh, you know, ending at some point versus like just this notion of like never, it's never going to end. And I always think about legacy and I always think about, um, you know, uh, what I'm going to leave. And I, I'm not saying that like this is going to be some sort of like landmark project, but I do think that, um, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of the people that I know and I'm really honored to be in their life. And so I want to like have record of that mm-hmm. and have a, a, a piece of my life um, really out in the open. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think, I also think, you know, pandemic is like, think a lot about that you know you think a lot about like mortality and like I the way that my life normally is is you know I'm unpartnered I don't have children so I travel a lot and I get to see people and I haven't gotten to do that for a year now and I um I miss it a lot and so I feel like these in some ways these like little vignettes are like me taking myself and hopefully the person who's in the conversation like out of this existence for a little while yeah yeah and and I I don't know there's also just a part of me that just loves showing off and being like look but not but not for me but like to be like look at this person has dedicated a lot of their life and now you know like a chunk of their afternoon or whatever when we're all so busy to just talk like, I don't, I don't think that that's, um, that's a normal thing that people do mm-hmm. anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think that, I think there's, you know, we're constantly in communication, but we're, are we actually talking? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So did that answer? I don't know if that answered it. No, you did. I think, yeah. I mean, and this is one of the things that I think about a lot that I thought about a lot um, after you know, the big orange scary man was elected four years ago, um, was that, you know, our relationships with each other are everything. Yeah. Like that's, that's what we'll have left. You know, if all of it goes away, that's what we'll have left. Yeah. And that's the only thing that I would want to keep, you know, is yeah. just our, yeah, like friendships and lovers and parents and siblings and you know, it's, that's, that's the stuff that matters. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think also, um, I am, you know, slowly coming out of all of the internalized assumptions about who I would be in this world. And, you know, that, that meant, um, like with my kid, with, with children and with us, with a husband and, you know, all of that stuff. And I think we're, I, I feel like I keep talking about this over and over and maybe this is the real reason why I want to do this podcast is just to like hammer it into people's heads. But like, mm-hmm. 
people can have intimate, beautiful relationships with people that are not their romantic partner. And I think that that is something that's never talked about in in our culture. And I think that there's a part of me that's trying to prove that because I think a lot of people think that I'm broken because I don't have that. Yeah. And I don't feel broken at all. Yeah. Um, I feel more supportive than I think a lot of the people that I know do. Yes. Because and it's not wrong, but you know, we are taught to put all of our eggs into one person. Mm-hmm. And, and then when we have kids, you know, that's kind of, and again, not wrong at all. And I think it's a way in a beautiful way to live for many people, but um, I have never lived like that. And um, I value, but I value my relationships like they are, you know, some of the closest, yeah. closest, if not closer than a romantic partner would be. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm like, now I'm just like a kill, I'm just like a killjoy about it. Cause I'm just like, Oh, it's the queerest. Fuck you if you say, if you say that, you know, like you're just sad and lonely. I'm like, I had one of the best Thanksgivings I've ever had in my whole life because I actually for once was able to like make my own food and, you know, like, and, and I miss people desperately, but like, no. so thank you for saying that was the queerest thing. That is the queerest thing. I think it's the queerest thing to say, you know, the way that we have constructed romance and partnership is fucked up. And I think like, that's truly what one of the best things that queer people have to like offer the world, you know, is that we can reimagine the family. We can reimagine um, what a proper romantic relationship looks like. We can reimagine friendship. Um, That is like our gift to the world, you know? And it's not, and I love that, you know, that you are sort of announcing all of your love for your friends through this podcast, mm-hmm. um, because it is a way to show everybody that friendships are so meaningful and important and we shouldn't devalue them. And I yeah. think we often do. I do think we yes. value them. Especially in adulthood. I think, I think they're considered the touchstone of your life when you're a child. But then once you're an adult, again, you're supposed to be in this very siloed space, right? And and it's, again, allowed and normalized, (laughs) but it's not everyone's story. And I don't think that's fair anymore. I'm kind of like, I don't fucking care anymore. I'm going to just say what I want to say. One of the things that I have learned after having a partner after for so long being single Mm -hmm. that I think it has made me realize even more how valuable and important my friends are to me Mm -hmm. it's like done the opposite of what everyone expects of people who are suddenly partnered right after after many years of not being partnered I think it's made me realize that um, my friendships got me through everything, you know, and um, like those are some of the happiest memories of my life. Yeah. yeah. And to have a partner that, that recognizes that and that upholds that. I mean, what a treasure to yeah. have. And lives that out too in her yeah. life. Yeah. It's a rare, it's a rare, beautiful thing. And I think that that's, you know, it's another example of like, 
you just, you just never know, right? You never know. You could just be talking to someone about someone moving to Boston. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> a yep. bit later, you have this, you know, beautiful romance. So I think, I, I think we just, we all try to prescribe our lives so, so close to the, to the vest and it's just, just let it go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. To let go of a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, you know, cheers to 2021 to letting go. 2021. We'll yeah. see. We'll see what happens. <laughs> well, Hafta, as always, um, you are a gift to me. And I I look forward to the day that we can um share a cocktail and yes. maybe some maybe some pancakes and eggs at Egg Harbor. Oh, I would love that. Yes. <laughs> I really just cherish our friendship. Yeah, I do too. I do too. So I'm, I'm so thankful and um, I'm so glad that you are on this journey with me. So I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. I am so lucky to know such incredible, thoughtful people. And I thank you for listening. Come back soon for another episode of It's Just You and Me.